Hello, and welcome to the Saga of Japan. Episode 2, Prehistory. In the last episode, Jimu led his people to modern-day Nara Prefecture in southern Honshu. But where and what is Honshu? For many in the West, when we think of Japan, we think of one unified island nation. But for much of Japan's history, that has not been the case. Now, there's a couple places we have to start here. We must realize that, in reality, while the first emperor, Jimu, is considered to have taken the throne on February 11th, 660 BCE, there is extensive archaeological evidence that people inhabited the island of Japan long before then. On the other hand, in regards to primary sources, the Kojiki and Nihon Soji, which we mentioned in the last episode, are the earliest accounts and were created centuries later, and not always accurate especially in regards to dates. Evidence actually seems to indicate that in fact Japan was not always even an island. Instead, during the Pleistocene, beginning around 2.6 million years ago, Japan would have been connected at the northern and southern points by stretching lowlands that have long since been swallowed up by the waves of the ocean. During this time, animals, plants, and people would likely have migrated across these lowlands before settling in what would become eventually the archipelago of Japan. Now let's get a simplified view of geography and climate of the land that we'll be focusing on in the majority of this podcast. There are many islands as we mentioned previously, but there are really only five we're going to be focusing on, at least in the first season of this podcast. To start, there's Hokkaido, the often snowy, cold, and northernmost island. Honshu, the largest of the islands, contains major cities such as Tokyo, Kyoto, or Osaka. The next island, Kyushu, is in the western part of modern Japan and is the island nearest to the mainland. There's Shikoku, a relatively small island which is sandwiched between Honshu and Kyushu. Finally, there's Okinawa, the furthest south and most remote. This island will probably be coming up the least this season, but will come up in future episodes and seasons. It must be remembered that much of Japan, both in history and climate, is affected by the mountain ranges running through the island nation. This causes more northern and western sides to receive snow and colder weather that's been blown in from the mainland, while south and eastern parts are generally more subtropical and often humid. These are accompanied by a rainy season in the summer, so plan your vacation accordingly. For many years, there was fearsome debate over if Japan was even inhabited in the Paleolithic, that is, Old Stone Era or later. Now, it would be irresponsible of me not to mention beyond this point that when we're discussing many of these early peoples and locations, while I refer to them as Japanese or the people of Japan, that they would not have called themselves Japanese. The very concept of a unified single Japan was many centuries in the future. I refer to these many places by their modern names unless I otherwise have to refer to them by a different name, for simplicity's sake. For those unfamiliar with ancient history, early humans before the development of cities were nomadic hunter-gatherers who constantly moved and lived off migrating herds of animals and whatever the land could provide. In Japan, these early hunters likely hunted not only giant deer, a terrifying thought in a weird way, but also an extinct type of elephant, not something we generally associate with Japan. Finally, around 12,000 years ago, the sea levels rose, they covered the lowlands, and they created a chain of islands. It would be during this time that large mammals would be hunted to extinction. 
Some mammals, such as the wolf, would not go extinct in Japan until much later. Some still say that in certain parts of Japan, if you listen carefully at night, you can still hear wolves howling in the distance. Now it is possible, perhaps, that there are some that have escaped detection, though they would have had to do so for over a hundred years. Or perhaps there are very big dogs. But that's a rabbit hole for another episode. During this time period, we come to the first major technological breakthrough for the inhabitants of Japan. Those who have studied world history are likely to guess that this new innovation might be something related to agriculture or farming. So that seems to be the trend among early civilizations. However, in typical Japanese fashion of bucking the trend, as we will see time and time again in this podcast, the answer is actually pottery. It's this pottery containing cord patterns that gives the first era of Japan its name, jomen, meaning cord pattern. These elaborate pieces of pottery are not the typical pottery we think of such as jars. In fact, many of them would have pointed ends, which if you think about it, is actually perfect for putting in the ground if you're a nomad on the move. However, the lack of agriculture certainly took its toll on the population, as most human remains from the period seemed to be malnourished. Eventually, with declining wild game and environmental changes leading to famine, the people of the Zhoumen period would begin rudimentary farming techniques. The next phase, named Yayoi, after the neighborhood in Tokyo with the first archaeological evidence of it was uncovered, would develop agriculture and begin bending the land to their needs rather than bending to what the land provides. At this point, let us take a step back and take a broader perspective when looking at the world. While this is a podcast devoted to the history of Japan, in my teaching, I find that the structure of history lessons taught in schools leads to a sort of geographical vacuum, where we are not necessarily taught the world's chronological history, but rather our regions or even our countries. This leads to broad misconceptions. For example, my students are always surprised when I point out that Oxford University was established before the Aztec Empire as we know it even existed. And it's not even close, with Oxford being established a near 400 years earlier. Similarly, we also as humans find it difficult to wrap our minds around the passage of centuries. A hundred years versus a thousand or versus ten thousand rarely actually sinks in. It might surprise you that although the famous Cleopatra of Egypt lived over 2,000 years ago, if you were to place her on a timeline of all human history, she would actually be closer to the opening of the first Chick-fil-A or the moon landing than she would be to the building of the Great Pyramids of Giza. Side note, I am not sponsored by Chick-fil-A. Yet. Call me. For these two reasons, why we will focus on Japan entirely for this podcast, we will not be isolationist in our perspective on Japan's development compared to the rest of the world. Throughout the world in prehistory, we see the rise of river valley civilizations. These are places where early agriculture and farming managed to take root due to the locals' relationship with the river. Now, this relationship would change depending on the location. For example, the Nile being extremely predictable, while the Tigris and Euphrates flooded chaotically and unpredictably, it is thought that the use of these rivers is what allowed early civilizations in those regions to take root. The farming techniques developed in China that eventually spread to Korea and then to Japan would be among the earliest influences. In fact, China would actually provide the first written language for Japan in the form of kanji, meaning Chinese characters. More on that in a moment. It's actually this neighbor China that will also happen to provide our earliest window into the archipelago of Japan. 
This record, called the Weizi, did not call Japan by the name we know it today, but rather referred to a single kingdom named the Kingdom of Wa. As early as 57 CE, the ruling dynasty of China was sending envoys and diplomats abroad, as well as receiving foreign ambassadors at court. Many of these dignitaries would travel through the outposts in Korea and into what they called the Kingdom of Wa. It's important to note that these were the same outposts that Chinese technology, particularly in regards to agriculture and rice, flowed through from China to Japan. Later on, this will be the jumping-off point for Buddhism. In 238 CE, emissaries arrive in China from the Kingdom of Wa, led by a man named Grand Master Natame. These diplomats received a gift in the form of a gold seal inscribed for Himiko, Queen of Wa and Friend of Wei. Now, side note, in my opinion, MC Shanahan of Wa and Friend of Wei would make a sick stage name for my future rap career when I retire from teaching. Now, moving on from that terrible idea, Wei diplomats would also travel fairly often to Japan, including 297 CE, when we receive another early glimpse into the archipelago. The chronicle that's left behind by these diplomats talk about many, many chieftains and kingdoms, reflecting a not-so-unified land. According to our sources, and what archaeological evidence we can find, there were likely over 100 different chiefdoms in the area, visited by these diplomats. Over time, and through much war, these have been consolidated by a kingdom called Yamatai, ruled by the shamanist queen named Himiko, the same one mentioned previously on the gold seal. Emissaries from Wei visited Himiko, and Himiko in the past had sent out dignitaries as well that reported her various wars of unification, including one with the male ruler of a place called Kona. The visiting dignitaries described spiritual aspects of Himiko, claiming she controlled her people with spells from the way of demons. Everyday administrative and governing affairs were left to her brother, who served as a kind of co-ruler. Queen Himiko herself lived in a fortress, surrounded by towers and similar to a stockade. Armed men guarded the outside of her fortress, with only one male inside, her brother. Reportedly, she was also attended by over a thousand female servants. Himiko, to our knowledge, never married. What's also interesting about this diplomatic mission is that throughout history, we often only get the ruling classes side of the story. Rarely do they consider the everyday people important enough to write about. This makes it very difficult in some eras for social historians to really learn what the average Joe was like. Thankfully, in this case, we have an exception to an extent. We also get to learn what the people of Yamatai were like. They describe, from the Wei perspective, a strange society where people frequently covered themselves with tattoos, regardless of social rank or hierarchy. In many cases, these tattoos would serve a practical purpose. For example, divers would create elaborate patterns all over their bodies in order to scare off large waterfowl and fish. The genders were also, from their observations, considered to be equal. We have to remember that in China, Confucian ideals such as filial piety or faithfulness to the parents and ancestors did not yet exist in Japan, although we will see later that some Confucian ideals do make their way over. The Yamatai kingdom was described as particularly prosperous, especially in regards to food. We have to remember that these observations are being taken with a lens from Chinese culture and tradition. While this may indicate some bias, it is also one of the only sources we have about the land during this period. Before we go any further, 
I do have to point out one more major controversy in all of this. The exact location of the Kingdom of Yamatai is still under serious contentious debate and has been for a very, very long time. Some historians argue it was on the northern part of the island of Kyushu, the island closest to the mainland, while others say it was in central Honshu. So, if you're ever looking to make a name for yourself, if you ever discover Queen Himiko's burial mound, you can put a centuries-old debate to rest. It's interesting that the first Japanese written sources, the Nihon Shoki and the Kojiki, do not mention Himiko by name. Yet they also quote directly from the Weizi, the document we've been learning from this episode several times. Furthermore, they mention several women that are associated with Himiko, leading the possibility that the creators of the two documents purposefully excluded Himiko. Lastly, the Wei diplomats were deeply impressed by the spiritual aspects of the Yamatai people. Divination was extensively used, where bones would be baked and then the cracks examined in order to find warning signs about the future, including future outcomes of wars and farming futures, just to name a few. Divination was nothing new to the diplomats, as it had been around in China for over a thousand years, in the form of using turtle shells, but nonetheless, they were impressed that these people were also practitioners. In the Z, they also write about burials and funeral practices. After death, the people fast from meat for ten days, while a designated mourner cries and the others party and drink sake. When all is said and done, much like Izanagi when he left Yomi, the land of death, the family would wash themselves to purify their bodies. The Weizi records that Himiko died in 248 CE, and a huge burial mound rose over a hundred feet, with many attendants being sacrificed and immolated. It is upon the death of Himiko that we leave the Yayoi period and enter the Kofun, or tomb period, which will last until around 700 CE. Queen Himiko and her kingdom are problematic for historians for a wide range of reasons. Due to not being mentioned in the Kojiki or the Nihon Shoki, along with these other documents having unreliable dating, particularly the further back you go on a timeline, her place in history is difficult to pinpoint. That being said, Himiko holds a special place in Japanese culture today. There's a statue of her outside of Kanzaki train station on the island of Ryuku. She's had boats named after her. Video games even feature her, such as The Legend of Himiko. Her image is painted on trains. She's appeared in anime and movies either as the central or side character. Himiko even had a racehorse named after her. On a personal level, I find it interesting that she is portrayed so extensively, especially in comparison to the first Emperor Jimu. Although, having been a big student of Roman history for years now, I suppose the average person is more likely to recognize the name Caesar rather than the mythological Romulus and Remus, who actually founded the city according to legend. During a reign, that is, the end of the Yayoi period, and the beginning of the Kofun or tomb phase, new technologies from China led to a massive surplus in agriculture. This, combined with the chaos in the wake of Himiko's death, in which several chieftains fought each other before placing on the throne a 13-year-old girl who was related to Himiko. This period results in an emerging military class that needed larger and larger burial mounds to represent all they accomplished in life. One of the new and literally shiny inventions that made its way over was the mirror. Broadly speaking, if you uncover a burial mound from these periods in Japan, the more mirrors you find, the more important or wealthy this person was. 
Soon after, the agricultural improvements arrived. The Chinese script would be imported, and these characters, or at least evolutions of them, are still in use today as kanji, which means Chinese character. Later on, they will add additional symbols and characters with scripts katakana and hiragana, and if you are ever to become fluent, you need all three. Upon entering this new period, the tomb phase, we enter a period where the people of Japan will begin to grow by leaps and bounds. A series of emperors will shape a new Yamato state, and with the rise of Yamato, a relatively young family, the Soga clan, will lay the groundwork for domination of the throne.